0: So a couple of things. One is my tool set is basically now is that is to lead with the bad news and ask for it. You know, I, I can tell you if you talk to any of my team in the last two, three years, when I finish almost all meetings, I ask for the no surprises test. What's the no surprises test? What are my blind spots? Lead with the bad news. Like things like that I don't like to hear, but because I need to hear. And I have brought in to my leadership team people who are neutral to, like, kind of negative, which I struggle with. And they struggle with me because I think I'm... I'm
1: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got David Kidder. David, thanks for making time. Very grateful to be here. So for people who don't know about you investing in SpaceX and Airbnb and writing books and advising GE. Can, can you give us the Reader's Digest version?
0: Yes, I'll do my best. You know, career entrepreneur. Now, four, boost, four startups, three venture-backed, one bootstrapped. I've written seven books, kind of five nonfiction series called the Intellectual Devotional, and then two business books, the Startup Playbook and the New to Big. And then I have two small venture capital funds that I run, which are mostly individual personal investments. The Bionic Fund, my co-founder there, and then Alt Option Return, which has been around for now 15 years. So it's about 40 deals. So kind of sat in lots of different sides of the table and thinking about how to grow things uh, with very modest success. But it's what I love to do. And
1: uh, notably, friend of the show Shane uh, Snow. We've done had him on, and then we did a mini series, and then we just filmed it. We just recorded another mini series. You're uh, an investor in Contently as well.
0: Yeah, for the beginning, great guy. Love Shane. He I remember him coming to my office, my last company, Clickable, and had an idea about a book. And so for the beginning, but he has got great energy, and he's got. Clear purpose, and he gives more than he takes. So he's a special guy.
1: Yeah, he's a, uh, and he's just one of the nicest entrepreneurs I've ever met. Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I try to hang out with honest entrepreneurs who know, you know, how fortunate they are when it when it when it works, and how unfortunate they are when it doesn't. So there's a there's a very sort of clean view of the world on how this this job actually works, and he's got one.
1: So I want to talk about the books. There's a bunch of things I want to talk about. But, you know, a couple, a couple of fun ones, I think, for people is any stories around Founders Fund and Airbnb and getting into SpaceX?
0: Yeah, so I've done – so I'm an LP in a couple funds, like Torch Capital with Jonathan Keaton and an LP in the Founders Fund for, I guess, since 2007 or 2008. And then all the rest of my investments are, have been direct – to the founder and or through someone who said, hey, could you help me with this? And this company needs that. And, you know, I really try to invest in things where I can move the needle. I've raised a lot of venture capital, so I don't need help running the company, but it's great to have access. And so one thing I have is a lot of access in deals and partnerships and within the Fortune 500. So I try to, you know, change the arc of a company by making a few critical introductions at the right time, talent, commercial, otherwise. And with the absence of those things, I really can't help and and I try to stick to those knittings and in these cases was just very fortunate to be kind of right place right time, and you need to do a lot of a lot of investing you know you, you don't do two you got to do twenty if you don't do twenty you do forty, so people don't really realize like just the volume it takes to to have any success in early stage investing, but the math is significant to pull it off so uh Classic overnight success in that regard. Many, many years in the working. <laughs> and where are you based? So my I have a company today called Bionic and it's based in Union Square, New York City. And I live in Rye, just outside the city, and drive in, you know, now post COVID or in COVID, two days a week after Labor Day this year. But otherwise I've been home with my three sons and my wife ever since lockdown happened, which is great because I did about a 190 days in on the road last year and happy to be home, with the exception of eating Tate's like, cookies obsessively. This is, my, this is a big problem for me. So yeah, got the dad bod working. Need to uh, need to drop the cookies and get back to the gym.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, can you talk to us about the differences specifically in the new book that I just bought this morning, um, New to Big, and uh, and also the Startup Playbook?
0: Yes, they're they're very different parts of my life and different journeys. I the startup playbook. I'll start with the second one first. Was written as I was crossing. I began that when I was crossing the chasm of my last startup, which we had raised you know thirty four million dollars and had you know, hundred eighty people trying to build on top of a bunch of big APIs like Facebook and Google and other social networks. And we were struggling, actually. So we had some success, but we're really caught on basically the discovery of sitting on top of someone else's monopoly. And this was a problem. You have to own all your revenue, as it turns out. And so I realized, like, how did I miss that? And so I started going out when I was traveling and doing interviews with my friends and their friends of friends and ask them, how do you bet your life? And what are the lenses you view the world through? And you're, and kind of what are their best advice, like about 20 different categories of company building, hiring, firing? Manage your energy, boards, all the classic things you need to know. And, you know, 300 hours and 40 some interviews later with the Sarah Blakelys, and the Robin Chases, Roddy Books, Elon Musk, Reed Hoffman, who wrote the four of the book, I just realized uh, that they're all basically saying the same five criteria. And that became the four of the book. And that started this movement, so to speak, around growth mindset and growth systems that my company, Bionic, has been pioneering for the last seven, eight years. And and then I wrote the new debate big to kind of describe the 1.0 of our model, which is sort of now probably at 6.0, but it's 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 a it's a way of working. And so happy to talk about that later.
1: Great. So I, I guess I th- I think one of the the first things that I'd love to talk about is um, this idea of total addressable market versus total addressable problem. Can you talk to people about this concept?
0: Yeah, we we call it Tap and it's 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 a very simple idea, but it's quite profound. It's it's even more profound when you're sitting at the top of a large organization, you know, because most of the incentives at a large company is really focused on making the big bigger, right? It's it's incrementalism, zero sum. It's really a share based total addressable marketplace view of the world, and while that's um, ideal in many scenarios, it actually is not designed for surviving disruption, right? Because Behavior, wallets, budget, experiences, what we market to can be understood. It's knowable, right? Disruption and or major changes in marketplaces is really understood through discovery. It's not planning. So while the big-to-bigger can sort of solve, you know, today's understanding of the world, you know, during innovation or growth inside that big-to-bigger machine is really at war with its purpose, which is to de-risk. It's optimizing for what exists. And so the reality is, is that venture capital and entrepreneurship are literally forms of management. They're designed for discovery. They're designed for new solutions, the skill of validation. And so if you could actually replicate that as a model in a large company and change the way it thinks and the way it works, can it become more competitive? And the answer is yes, it can. Just like sending more people into lean manufacturing or Six Sigma will make it more efficient, efficient, you can actually create a growth culture with growth metrics that unlock the same properties that you know, growth has discovered in the independent world of startups. The reality is that large companies are not intending you know, to go you know, so far out that they're trying to discover a future that doesn't exist. They're just trying to make what they have competitive today. So the TAM at TAP really frames them from going from a share-based view of the world, TAM, to a problem or need view of the world, from linear portfolio views of the world, from inside out to outside in. And when you reframe around the actual customer problem or need from the outside in, it completely changes the way they think about business they're in. They're no longer competing with Unilever or, or JP Morgan or whatever. They're just solving the customer problem in a portfolio where they're not launching one big bet a year. It costs 50 million. They're gonna launch 50 with a 90% failure rate. So they can discover the why them, why now outcome.
1: Yeah. When you take that same principle to new ventures, how do you apply it?
0: Well, I think the role—I think people wildly underestimate the role of outside forces in new ventures. And you obviously have a lot of experience in this as well. Which is, you know, when you ask a great entrepreneur to what degree uh, is timing or a good fortune part of their success? You know, like every dollar in the bank, right? Usually, the answer is somewhere between like sixty and eighty percent. This is obviously not scientific, but they're like, yeah. We were there when it happened. We predicted that future, but we weren't dead when it showed up. Or worse, we were late, right? We were beyond the hype curve or beyond the reality curve. So you know, market forces typically are outside in, and they're a very significant influence on the way uh, a startup is successful. The company's big advantage is they already have scale. So if they can get to zero to 100 million revenue, which is stupidly hard to do as a startup, and they can leverage the small pieces like channel and relationship, if they can get somebody to 100, they can make 100 a billion quite easily because they can move the future forward. They don't need to wait for it to happen because you know you worked at City. They have a trillion dollars of treasury. If they can find a you know a, a shared cryptocurrency out of for a blockchain that creates you know border to border resolution, and once they follow- solve the model innovation, they can quickly transform an industry because they already own it. So I think that we startup founders, of which I am one, underestimate um, how significant and valuable what big companies have. And big companies wildly underestimate how much permission a startup has to solve something as opposed to make what you have work. And once you get those things fixed, you can make a large company competitive and a startup, you know, more probable to be successful.
1: You know, I think that I wasn't it, it was interesting to see Clayton Christensen had a quote for you about the book, you know. And there's so many of those things that I think you guys share about the, like, considering the problem more than the market as it is currently defined. You know, he's talking so much about if you, like, I'm thinking of competing against luck where he's saying, like, hey, non-consumption is probably a bigger growth opportunity than trying to eat your competitor's lunch, you know? And, and yet, if you just frame your industry the way all your competitors have, it, it's like by framing it that way, it implies what the certain answers are, where as you talk about, like, I don't know, we, we had Steve Blank on the show a couple of weeks ago and talking about like how thorough he is in his getting out of the building to ask customers and like questioning the assumptions. You know, you think about that Christensen quote about what assumptions have to prove true for this to pan out. And I, I paused your book this morning and I called my business partners I'm like, dang it, you guys. I hear the same thing from all the smartest people, and I'm not sure that we're doing this well enough with our, with this. We're trying to raise money for the management company of our REIT, right? And we're using the Jobs Act regulations so we can j- do general solicitation. We're trying to do kind of the non-finance guy route. We're trying to go after kind of the retail side that, you know, most of my Wall Street buddies turn their nose up at, right? <laughs> and and yet there are, just reading the book this morning made me think about the questions that I haven't asked, the assumptions that that are what we're looking for. So we assume our entrepreneur buddies are looking for as well, but, but we haven't. I don't think we've put in the effort like you're talking about for that discovery.
0: Well, certainly, I mean, listen, how you think is a shockingly powerful influencer on the outcome of your company. So I'll, I'll give you a couple ideas around just sort of, I think of them sort of as lenses. So I I wear glasses and so I'm taking my glasses off and putting it back on as a metaphor here. But imagine you have one set of lenses on, I'm going to give you another set of lenses to like, let's say, look at your, you know, your retail REIT, so to speak. Right. And so if you take the five lenses from the startup playbook, that is one set of lenses and I'll share those in about 30 seconds. But the TAM to TAP concept is really about understanding who is the customer what's the need. So Steve Blank is also in the Startup Playbook, you know, before his kind of lean, you know, movement started. And I had read Four Steps to the Epiphany, the kind of dog-eared version you can only buy on eBay years before the Startup play. He called it the Startup Playbook or the Startup, sorry, playbook the Startup Manual, which I have somewhere in my office. And he, you know, the four steps, the epiphany in that book sort of capture his methodology. And it's very disciplined, but that's his form of de-risking. And he goes to the bottom of the problem to figure out, like, is this worth solving? And one of my investors in my last company was Peter Thiel in the Founders Fund. And he always said that, you know, he always uses this word, you know, uh, competition is for losers. And what he was saying was effectively is like, don't build a against the competitive landscape. It's just a bad indicator of someone who thinks they know a marketplace that exists. You know true success lives when you actually create the market and I call everybody into it. So, if you kind of suffer from the sit of comparison and track press releases or whatever's happening in the venture landscape, you're misunderstanding why a company is actually successful. Very few founders chase white space and are have any success, and the reason why comes full circle back to these five lenses. So what I heard and what I wrote about what I've talked about now for about eight nine years is how to bet your life. So if you sat down with any meaningful time with Reed or Sarah or Elon or anyone would say, basically any good idea passes through these five lenses. And the first lens is proprietary gift. Why you, what is your secret? What do you know that no one else world knows? What is your, cause that, that's what your one-of-one company exists on, bet on, right? But it has to lead to an unfair advantage. The second lens is extreme focus. You don't want one founder with 10 options. You want 10 op- ten founders with one option each because it takes your whole obsession, night and day, conscious and subconscious to solve it, right? So, you know, as Dick Costolo, a buddy always said is you want to run down the dark alleys to get to the one that has a light. Get in and out as quickly. That's where lean comes in is I can quit things as fast as I get to commercial truth. So I want extreme focus on one need. And the third lens is, and I've been saying this now for 10 years, is you got to build painkillers and not vitamins. Chronic, lifelong, malignant pain. Vitamins are great. Would it be great if the world changed all its behavior and adapted to us? Nope. It's never going to happen. Those startups die. Painkillers are existing, newly discovered pain. The last two lenses. So most ideas die across those first three lenses. Proprietary gift, extreme focus, and painkillers. Very high hurdle. But the last two are really executing because you want to asymmetrically invest in the thing that makes the company impossible to replicate. That's the 10x factor. Give it enough time, 10 times better, uncatchable, one of one. That's why press releases and chasing competitive landscape cannot be part of your psyche. Because the fifth lens, which is the hardest, is really you want to create permanence intentionally, hooks and barbs and customers so they can't leave. So all this comes back is, is to ask for is like, who is the customer? Is it the retail? Is it the institution? Is it the building owner? I don't know. But in your context, getting that wrong is completely fatal, which is why framing it from markets to problem and need and then going all the way to the bottom to get focus to answer those questions, those lenses changes everything. And all of that is done simply in how you think.
1: So when you, when you share all of that it's it's like, it leads me to want to like justify like, oh, I've done this and this and this to to like, oh, I qualify, I belong in the cool kids club that can do it the David Kidder way, right? And and yet that's probably not the most helpful thing. My guess is the most helpful thing is for me to be most concerned about where my holes are, to be most concerned about getting to a place of radical self-honesty where we're not sitting around the boardroom table drinking our own Kool-Aid of like, oh no, we've totally got a check mark on all five of those. What so let's you know because now I'm gonna have to go buy this book on Audible. So when we get off the call and I go buy the startup playbook and I listen to it, do you have any tips for for other entrepreneurs on how to help ourselves? get to that place of radical self-honesty and not give ourselves a pass.
0: Right. So I I, I struggle with this because, and you could ask anybody I've ever worked with, is that like my superpower is my near pathological will and optimism in scenarios, which, which is also, by the way, if you don't put yourself, you know, around you, like the key players who can balance that, it's a huge liability. On one hand, it brings people with conviction and so you could define a marketplace and bring everybody into it. Cause you want to own something. You want to join a marketplace, you want to create it, which is that point I was making about the competition part. But to your point, I mean, I, I think the lesson I would just say is is that you gotta be patient with this. Companies take a long time to build. Great companies. I mean, getting to twenty, twenty-five, thirty million, which is where on our journey, is like it's six, seven, eight, ten 10 years of your life. And not every company you're going to build is going to work because, as I said earlier, outside forces have such a huge influence on it. There's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs who have been completely wiped out by COVID to no fault of their own. The world changed and they're on the wrong side of it. Are they any better or you know worse than we are in this job? No, they're just unfortunate. And that's something you have to accept. You'd be fortunate unfortunate, And I just want to say like, it, the answer to those questions with the five lenses, your reaction, which is my reaction too, which is I have the answers to that let me convince you is wrong. And that's I, something I suffer with because it's not about being right. It's about discovering the truth. But if I can't create an environment in myself or my team and use the skills like like Steve's or otherwise. To get to the commercial truth, I ultimately will fail because, as Elon once told me, mm-hmm. wishful thinking is the enemy.
1: So, what tips do you have for those of us that know some of our mistakes that wishful, t- wishful thinking has been a problem of ours in the past? What what tips or tools of how to combat that within ourselves?
0: Well, I mean, I'll tell you what the way I have learned, and this is it's, I'm 47, so this took me many startups, even the last two three years, to figure out, which was. I use tools, mindset tools, and leadership tools in my conversation with my leaders and my teams to to make sure that I'm inoculated from this risk so a couple things. one is my tool set is basically now is that is to lead with the bad news and ask for it you know i I can tell you if you've talked to any of my team over the last two, or three years when I finish almost all meetings. I asked for the no surprises test. What's the no surprises test? Where are my blind spots? Leave with the bad news, it's like things like that I don't like to hear, but because I need to hear, and I and have brought in to my leadership team people who are neutral to like kind of negative, which I struggle with, and they struggle with me because I think I'm I'm super tilted. They call it full tilt, and they're the opposite. So I, the point is, I you have to it's your your what you have to create around you with intention is a puzzle where your piece meets meets someone on piece and there's very little overlap. But that puzzle should create a clear picture of a truthful future. And so it's in the conversations, but it's also in the functions that you have to create your business where that's the security in the company is really anchored in truth.
1: It's, It's interesting to think like very positive people, very optimistic people, like desiring intentionally bringing in the people who will put the brakes on or potentially cause the friction, you know. I'm thinking I'm thinking about everything we've covered so far, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts. You know, I usually say this at the end. I we you know, we usually break the interviews up into part one, part two. Maybe this will take us to the end of part one. But if you think about all this all this interviewing you've done, all this experience you've had, the being the investor, being the entrepreneur, helping the big companies, the little companies. If you were going to go back and give your a younger version of yourself some advice on how to accomplish what you've done, but quicker or better,
0: what do you think that would be? It's interesting because I have three sons. Two are, one's 14, one's 13, one's 10. And so when they're, they turn 13, we don't have a uh, Bobbitts, but we have this thing called Steak Night, K-N-I-G-H-T. And it's a coming of age dinner where my sons will, my son who turned 13, now my second one who just did, invites five uh, of their friends' dads in the room for a steak dinner. And I bring my my father, my brother-in-laws, uh, and a couple really wise, you know, friends and mentors, General McChrystal and others who've come in, basically wrote a letter to the young self. And they speak to my son as if they were not only their son, but themselves. Here's what I believe. Here's what I tell tell my young self. And it's a, there's not a dry eye at this dinner. It's very serious. It's profound. And the wisdom of the room is just incredible, but it's a chance for permission of people to speak the truth. And so as it relates to my, this steak night question you're asking, because as one is I think you, I would tell my young self to surround myself with the sum of the five people. You probably heard this wisdom before that made a great person because you're not going to be a great person and you're not ever going to be a whole person that can, You'll be hopefully a whole person, but you're not going to be a whole, you know, leader with no weaknesses. And so I would say, don't fix yourself, complete yourself. But the completing yourself is because of who you're around for a long period of time. And I think I probably tried to chase too many attributes of what I thought were success or was required for me to be successful, the permission, also the asking. I think people undervalue what it means to ask for something, you know? ask for help, ask for the, as Bloomberg said, the most important piece of success advice he ever got was to ask for the check and shut up. You know, selling past the close, just asking, you know, asking for the date, asking for the opportunity. I just think that there are opportunities to pull yourself forward if you're surrounded by the right people who complete you and then ask for it. So that would be my best advice going back. And then I'd also say that, you know, having done a tremendous amount of deep work over the last four years of my life, you know, underneath it all, like, you know, your reality is a, a subset of your intentional choices, because choice is just our intention. And underneath that is just the why. Why do I intentionally make these choices that live to my reality? Because we keep repeating them until we learn them. But underneath the why is really, uh, once you learn that, is really only one of two choices, and that is love or fear. And most people, myself included, lived most of my life making decisions through a lens of fear. And once I was able to get through that, understand the why did I make those intentional choices from fear that I return to myself to be able to make them through love and abundance in every aspect of my life and ask. And that profoundly has changed so much, you know, over the last decade, but certainly the last four or five years. And so, I don't know, it's a long way to answer to you, but those are probably, I guess, the two best pieces of advice I would probably give myself, but... It's a great steak night question. And I think, I don't know if you have kids or not, Jess, but I think it's, it's a great exercise. It's a great question to ask.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got four, there ages go. 16, to, 16 to 9. And I think, I think I just found your next book. Here I had to write a steak night book and get permission to publish these letters from people. You know, it's interesting. One of my favorite shows we've done in a long time, we just had Walt Rakowich on. He was the CEO of like the third largest real estate company in the world, Prologis. They have like 120 billion in assets now, and he took over during the financial crisis when their market cap hit like 500 million, and you know total crisis, and you know grows the company back, does a big merger in four years, has it back to 50 billion. Okay, and and it's interesting. His new book, Transfluence, which you'd probably like, he really talks so much about this the the fear and faith thing or fear and love, you know. And I think as you were saying that, it just made me think like how many of the mistakes and how many things holding me back are fear that are some sort of self-focused fear. And when you say love, it makes me think about, you know, my business partners, these people we're trying to care of, all this stuff at our charity, Child Rescue, you know, and it, as soon as you say love, it makes me think about other people. As soon as you say fear, it makes me think about myself.
0: Yeah, there's there's power in, in serving, you know, there's power. I mean... When I wrote The Purpose of Bionic Now seven years ago, with my co-founder, Ann, who's amazing, it was we ignite growth revolutions. And I used to think that was about money or it was the success of our partners. But it really is the uh, the growth revolution is, is really the interior life of the leader, right? The permission they give themselves to change, the permission they give themselves to tell the truth, the permission, the ceiling and i i've you know my own life is very similar is that i up up to almost like the dollar amount of my expectations i've lived to and so you know being two or three or four times as bold as what you think is possible is such a hugely important intention that i think people just don't they think of it as a soft thing it's actually a hard thing and there's, there's, you know, as to the love or fear. I mean, that's really about the possibility of things because you're afraid of being foolish or feeling foolish. And I have you gone through success and, you know, heartbreaking failure. I've like, you know, I've lied in the ground and cried my eyes out before and had to start over. I had this moment where I, I, I was one of my friends, David Smith called me one night and he was my chief revenue officer. Wonderful guy, amazing guy. And he said, why are you making this so hard? And, you know, we had this, massively funded company and we're struggling and i said well what do you mean like and he said well you know you're it's all about you you know you're it's about only your vision only your option because at some point you need to give this over and i was like what does that even mean like give it over to god or the universe you know you you really don't control these things and more importantly you're more than the company it's just a company like get over yourself right and, and I, I realized in that moment, I was like, he's like, you have to accept all the outcomes. And I said, what does that mean? I'm like, and I said, you mean failure? He goes, he goes, cover a business insider. And he says, you know, you're, you're, no, you're never really a hero or an idiot. The two front co- covers you're both terrified of, right? And so that night, I just sort of like, I was the first time I just gave it over and I just laid down and cried and cried. And cried I just like, it was like, I failed. But in reality, I just been now I was completely open to whatever the outcome was, including failure and success. And I asked for it. And then literally, I don't know, 60 days later, quote unquote, out of the blue, I got a phone call to have the company acquired, which I had nothing to do with. It just was it quote unquote happened. Right. So I think like when you do that, like there's there's when you could look at the company for what it is, it's just a journey. It's not an outcome. And so when you shift from the reality is whenever you get to the top, there's nothing there. Right. When you sell the company, you are being completely miserable. It's, it's about just falling in love with the becoming, the journey, the grind, the building of it, all the lessons and like not trying to get out of it. Like just it's just a set of problems to solve and grow through. And that's it. So I don't know I just, I just what's one of my primary philosophies in my company at Bionic is is that we are here to become, and I don't want people to be here about thinking about the exit or you know what they're going to get. I mean those are all true, but like it's not why because those are not big enough reasons. It's the becoming that matters. It's, it's how you're growing.
1: I love it. Well, everybody, tune back into part two? Th- thanks for sharing that, David. I, I really appreciate it. Oh no, it's uh, part of the reality. Great. Thanks everyone. Tune back in for part two.